Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. This week on the agenda, political and financial chaos. Can the UK retain its position in the world as the government crumbles and its economy wavers? On the 23rd of September, just a matter of weeks into Liz Truss's tenure as Prime Minister, her novice Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng took to his feet in Britain's House of Commons to deliver what was termed a mini-budget. In spite of global economic turmoil in the wake of the pandemic and the conflict in Ukraine, and in the midst of a cost-of-living crisis caused by soaring inflation and rising interest rates, he announced tax cuts worth £45 billion. By Monday the 26th, the pound had dropped to a record low against the dollar. And soon after that, five-year government UK bonds saw their largest increase in a single day as traders sold off UK assets. Economic experts warned that the largest tax cuts in 50 years could see a repeat of the 1976 sterling crisis when the UK had to ask the International Monetary Fund for a bailout. That week, a poll showed the ruling Conservative Party's support had plummeted. Opposition Labour was shown holding a record 33-point lead. It was clear something had to be done, and the first U-turn was performed. Prime Minister Truss conceding that a plan to abolish the 45p tax rate would be abandoned. Then Kwarteng bowed to increasing pressure and announced that he was bringing forward the release of a detailed fiscal plan to the end of the month, three weeks earlier than expected. On Wednesday the 12th, new figures showed the UK economy had unexpectedly shrunk in August and the Bank of England announced its help to support the bond market would stop at the end of the week. Kwarteng was in Washington to hear the IMF rebuke the UK over its tax cuts, saying the policies of the finance minister and central bank chief shouldn't be contradictory. And Kwarteng left the meeting early to return to the UK where he was sacked just 38 days into his job. Liz Truss held a news conference to row back on yet more of the mini-budget plans. Then, on Monday the 17th, the new finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, made his first major announcement, going further than the markets expected. Almost all the tax cuts in the mini-budget were reversed. And then, on Thursday the 20th, Liz Truss stepped down as Prime Minister after just 45 days in power. Within a week, the UK would have had its third Prime Minister in as many months. So that's how the UK got here. But just what went wrong? And what does it all mean for the UK on the world stage? Well, joining me now are Alistair Jones, Associate Professor of Politics at De Montfort University, and Dr Andrew Mycock, Reader in Politics at the University of Huddersfield. Professor Jones, let's start with you. What a week. I mean, Liz Truss had said she was a fighter, not a quitter, but she quit after most of her economic policies were U-turned. I mean, was there any coming back for her after the markets doomed her economic policy? I don't think there was a coming back, in all honesty. I think she'd made it very clear what she wanted to do. She spoke in her leadership election throughout the entire campaign. She was very clear what she wanted to do. And during that campaign, Rishi Sunak basically said, well, if you do that, this is what's going to happen. And for the most part, his predictions came true. And a lot of commentators were saying that a lot of the promises that Liz Truss was making were not actually doable. So the knock-on effect was when she actually implemented them, the markets took fright. 
Now, you could argue that removing Kratzing and replacing him with Jeremy Hunt stabilised things a little bit, and the fact that he junked almost everything she wanted to do meant that there was the possibility of stability. But what you then had was a situation of a prime minister being in post but not being in power, and possibly the power sitting in number 11 Downing Street, not in number 10. So the knock-on effect of that was she became largely impotent. So, yeah, yeah it, it, it was a case of going downhill very slowly and then... Yeah, free fall very quickly. Dr. Michael, her tenure was so short, I think shorter than the leadership contest um, to, to actually um, elect her. Uh, but during that time, she presided over turmoil in the, on financial markets, catastrophic damage um, to the ruling Conservative Party. What could, it, what could, if anything, salvage it from repair? And one senior minister put it that the party is now ungovernable. Liz Truss is certainly going to be remembered in the annals of British history as the shortest uh, prime minister and also a prime minister that presided over a period of, of, of chaos, which considering in the last six years since the referendum, British political culture and the UK government has typically been defined by chaos, was distinctive in terms of its intensity and its remit and its effects. What can salvage it? Well, in some ways, it's difficult to say. For 30 years, the Conservative Party has been divided. First, it was divided over membership of the European Union. And after 2016, it's been increasingly become divided over whether it should be a, a one nation conservative, a compassionate conservative party that believes in some ways in some form of redistribution or a more libertarian party, which is focused on issues around the culture war and a more low tax, high small state economy, which is very much around a libertarian agenda. And I think those ideological divisions are very much at the fore in terms of what's happened over the past um, few months. The leadership election between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss in many ways highlighted those ideological divisions. And it is a sense in which whatever happens in the next week in terms of selecting a new prime minister, that those divisions aren't going to get healed quickly. So in some ways, what can be salvaged from this? Well, is in many ways is that the Conservative Party, like many of these large parties, is deeply divided in its sense of its, of its membership and that it's going to take a pretty unique special figure to bring that party back together. I want to come back to, to that, but I want to first pick up on something you mentioned and put this to, to you and Professor Jones, because the European press, they're certainly blaming Brexit for what they're calling um, the UK's political insanity. I mean, Le Monde wrote, British governments since Brexit have demonstrated with ever greater talent that leaving the EU only takes Britain further away from the promised land of recovered sovereignty and untrammeled freedom. So how much do you think that the current political and economical turmoil in the UK can be traced back to Brexit? I think a lot of it can. I mean, where it gets blurred is COVID. So how much is COVID related and how much is Brexit related? Sometimes that's not very clear. And the two, the two very much overlap. But if you go back to the commitment that David Cameron made to hold the original referendum, that was about keeping the Tory party together, keeping it united and stopping um, supporters drifting off to UKIP. Now, in making that commitment, he, he stemmed that flow, but the knock-on effect was he didn't have time to prepare any groundwork for the referendum, so actually there could be a clear Remain campaign. The Remain campaign was terrible in that. They appealed to people's heads, not to people's hearts, and it was very clearly led by Cameron, and he wasn't allowing outsiders in. So you had a very narrow approach there, whereas the, the Leave campaign appealed to people's hearts, and they could promise the world 
and they did. And it was a believable story. Now, the problem has been since Boris Johnson got his legislation through Parliament, the reality hit and the divisions that were there, the difficulty in simple things such as we want to trade with the EU, fine, here's all this paperwork you've got to fill in. And they were promised by Johnson there would be no paperwork. And the trust regime carried on with that sort of scenario that we can do things our way, the EU will change. And basically, it's clearly not worked. Now, whether this becomes the first step towards the UK looking at thinking about rejoining the EU, I think that's potentially 10 years away. At the moment, there is still very much, if anybody was to say, let's talk about rejoining, the right wing media would go apoplectic. And basically that person, that person's party would be annihilated in the right wing media. So yeah, Brexit is a big problem, but there's other factors as well. Dr. Michael, do you think that Britain's a long way away then from taking back control? Uh, it certainly is within the vision of those hardline Brexiteers. You know, taking back control was never something that was very clearly defined in the EU referendum. And I think many of the problems that the Conservative Party have had in terms of what type of Brexit to be delivered have been largely focused on that lack of certainty. I think at the same time, it's interesting that recent polling has suggested that there's a majority of people in the United Kingdom that would welcome a slightly closer relationship with the European Union. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they'd like to see the United Kingdom rejoin the European Union. And I think, as Professor Jones says, the, the debate about whether the United Kingdom would rejoin the European Union is certainly a decade away or more. The political fissures and that sense of exhaustion around the question of EU membership mean that I don't think the electorate is really up for a rerun of 2016 at the moment. Professor Jones, you mentioned before there were other things in the mix that, that are con contributing to, to what's going on. I mean, Liz Truss always insisted that the current economic upheaval was largely to blame on this global phenomenon, all these other external factors going on. I mean, the former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, Sir Charles Bean, said that that stance from her, blaming it on global events, was disingenuous. I think that, that that's actually, um, I would say that's not right. The global events have mattered. So the situation in Ukraine, for example, has had a profound impact noticeably around the world. So very, very clearly, the issues around such things as gas supplies, huge problems, and even more so in the UK, even though we import so very little gas from Russia. So there's that aspect there. Then you look at the, the, the rebuilding of the world economy in, in this dare I call it, post-COVID world, where all the, the world stopped in effect, trading around the world stopped, and just rebuilding all of that, trying to get demand sorted, trying to supply the demand, and different countries having different agendas and how they want to take it forward. So with the UK having left the EU, looking to trade with other countries around the world, and then suddenly there's a block on any such trade going on because of COVID, it's just made it very difficult. And the knock-on effect has been some of the inflationary pressures are about the world economy rebuilding itself in this so-called post-COVID period. And I think factors like that need to be taken into consideration. Having said that, I w my opinion is that the Brexit factor for the UK has made everything that bit worse than other countries have necessarily experienced. And Dr. Mycocker, what, what, what do you think on this? Do you think that the, the, the double whammy, if you like, of the pandemic, global economic slowdown, Ukraine, has meant that any government having to deal with this would, would, would struggle? I think absolutely. You know, we're living in, you know, perilous times. And I think that the fact that there is a combination of national factors and international factors has made 
you know, governing the United Kingdom and in any way trying to establish some kind of stability or predictability to policymaking has been a huge challenge. And I think that, you know, if you look over the past 10 years, that has covered the period of austerity after the financial crash of 2008, what's happened with the European Union and the debates around Brexit and, of course, COVID. And then to bring in those international factors that we've seen over the last year or two materialise, it is a significant challenge. I think at the same time, if you look particularly at Liz Truss's period in office, it seemed that it was to, to some extent to be rather sort of brave or foolhardy in some ways to actually go and then to try and implement such a radical programme of, of reforms, particularly financial reforms. And in many senses, the fact that she spooked the markets and that we've seen this economic turmoil that has led to such political turmoil has not been in, you know, in many ways, you can't blame it simply on international factors. This has been to a certain extent self-made. I think that makes it very difficult when we consider, well, what happens next? Because the challenges aren't simply political. They are in a vast array of both domestic and international areas of policymaking. Talking about how the markets reacted, um, Dr Michael, they cheered, didn't they, when um, the new Chancellor Jeremy Hupp ripped up um, Liz Truss's mini budget. And then again, when she stepped down, but still no one's really giving any answers on specific elements of tax and spending policy. Do you anticipate we're going to get any of that in coming weeks? Well, certainly, obviously, there is the, the date of October the 31st, at which point the government is expected to make a financial statement. I think the challenges are going to be to what extent whoever is elected as the new leader is going to agree with that financial statement. Are they going to want to bring in their own perspective, new policies in terms of financial policy and economic policy as well? So I think the danger is here is that there is a certain sense in which you know, the markets and the city are somewhat mollified by the fact that there has been a rejection of trussonomics, if we want to call it that. But at the same time, there's uncertainty into the future. And I do not expect in the near future that the markets are going to be convinced entirely by the fact that a change of leader is going to bring greater stability and certainty to the British government. Still with me are Alistair Jones, Associate Professor of Politics at De Montfort University, and Dr Andrew Mycock, Reader in Politics at the University of Huddersfield. Let's look at onlookers um, like the United States, China, EU, important trading partners um, for the United Kingdom. What might they like to see in a new British Prime Minister? I think the f first thing is stability. And I think um, I would throw in with stability also aspects of common sense. We can throw in as well trustworthiness. I think what we've seen in particular during the Johnson years was a cavalier attitude towards the truth and the knock-on effect of Boris Johnson saying one thing to somebody and then saying the exact opposite to somebody else and both of them saying, oh, he said this and then there's a, a spat as a result, moving away from all of that. And if that can be started, then the UK can start to look at like, if you like, a more sane player in the global field. At the moment, there's particular aspects of the UK where the rest of the world look at us and going, actually, they're, they're on the right thing there. For example, the way Britain, the UK has supported the situation in Ukraine, the support given to the Ukrainian government. British government, regardless of who's been prime minister, has been clear, has been consistent, has been prominent. But on so many other things, it's it's been an absolute disaster. So you look at the relationship with the EU and the border between uh, the Irish Sea between the Britain and Northern Ireland and the, the customs checks that are required there. That was agreed by Boris Johnson. And suddenly he was saying, throw them out, change it again, renegotiate. And Liz Truss carried on with the same. Although in fairness, some of the others in her cabinet were a lot more courteous towards the EU. And I think... 
in some respects, dare I call it an arrogant approach to the rest of the world in the 21st century that is wholly inappropriate for what is a medium-sized state, really. Um, that stepping back from that attitude towards the rest of the world and trying to be more constructive and more positive and a team player, that is what they're going to be looking for. Uh, because if it's not there, then the, the US steps back from us, China steps back, the EU steps further back, and suddenly we're a very small, isolated little country just off the European coast. Dr. Michael, what do you think that the rest of the world is making of all this? I mean, the UK has been pilloried in international media. It has indeed. And I think the interesting thing here is, is that there, there's both a historical sense in which you know, British democracy was seen to be you know, the mother of all parliaments and there was a certain stability and soundness to British government, regardless of who was ever in power. And what we've seen, as I say, over the past six years ago, has continually underlined the fact that the political system itself is in crisis and the ability to make sound policies also being compromised. You know, we are facing the potential of the fifth prime minister in six years come the end of next week. I think it's interesting because it comes at a time when there's been a lot of focus on this idea of global Britain, a Britain that can both be a partner to the European Union but not be a member of it, but can be reaching out to the rest of the world and building alliances and connections and trade deals to mean that Britain can become a flexible and adaptable partner on the global stage. I think a lot of that reputational damage linked to the last few weeks and months is going to mean that whoever wins the leadership election and maybe the next general election is going to be faced with a situation where Britain's global reputation has been severely damaged, not just politically, but also in the context of its economic soundness and its ability to be a trustworthy trade partner going forward. Alistair, let's stick with this concept of salvaging Britain's reputation on the international stage. I mean, what's to be done in a country where the markets have intervened, a humiliated Prime Minister had to perform numerous U-turns, and the de facto leader, arguably, is a Chancellor who himself lost two party leadership elections? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the situation is, first of all, it, it is how do you get stability? Well, number one, you're not to spook the markets. So... I suspect that what we're going to see on the 31st of October is going to be a statement coming from the Chancellor that is going to try to keep the markets happy and say to the rest of the world, actually, we can be fiscally responsible. So there may be some tax cuts, but they're going to be further down the line, although those that we've already legislated for are staying in place. There is going to be increases in public spending, in particular targeted areas, but in other areas, it's going, it's going to flatline. And therefore, in relation to inflation, is actually going to be, in effect, a small cut. So we're going to see that attempt to say to the rest of the world, look, we actually do know what we're doing. Um, just give us time. It's going to take two or three years to actually bed down. Now, the problem we've got is the next general election potentially is December 2024. So what we're going to be seeing in about three or four, maybe six months time is the start to crank up towards another general election. And that always causes a degree of instability as well as to who is going to win. So what is needed from the, the U, current UK government is a short-term plan that shows stability, but that can be built upon by whoever wins the next general election. So be it Labour winning, be it the Conservatives winning, be it a coalition government. Whoever wins, they can build on the stability that is created from now. And I think it is that degree of reassurance that the rest of the world is going to be looking at for the UK to be doing, for the government to be doing, for the Chancellor to be leading on, and for whoever becomes the new Prime Minister to be supporting and building on that. 
Now, if the new prime minister comes in and wants to junk everything that's done on the 31st of October, watch the markets go into absolute panic and then Britain will be pilloried yet again. Looking at the bigger picture, the country, uh, like much of Europe and other parts of the world, we're stuck in this cost of living crisis with um, high inflation, soaring bills. If the principal concern for many is what's left in their pocket, does it matter that there's no one in power? Well, I think it certainly matters in the fact that, you know, many people are facing, you know, extreme hardship at the moment. And the potential is that we've got a winter which is going to present even more challenges for many people in terms of not only energy prices, but as you quite rightly say, rising inflation and the cost of living crisis. And in some senses, the problem has been over the last six months is that the leadership, the continual focus on the leadership of the Conservative Party and the problems in terms of both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss's prime ministerships, has been that it's taken up political bandwidth in terms of policy making. And so for many people, they're feeling that, well, there's a situation that feels a little bit out of control. And it doesn't feel like there's anyone at the tiller of government that's actually got a handle on what could happen. And the problem that is going to be now is that a new prime minister comes into power. They're going to have to be able to both assert their authority within Westminster across the Conservative Party, and also hit the ground running in terms of policy to make sure that people feel assured that the government is acting in their interests. And the danger here is twofold, is that in some ways that it's damaging the Conservative Party's reputation as the party of economic trust, that they've got the ability to control the economy in a way which they argue the Labour Party hasn't. But also there's a problem in terms of the sense in which trusting government is also being hollowed out even further. And we've seen over the past 10 years that repeated polls have highlighted that there is an increasing sense of mistrust and distrust of the UK government, whoever's in power. And I think that's a real problem because this isn't just a crisis of government, it's a crisis of democracy as well. So, Andrew, look, it's not a legal requirement, but is a general election the only way to really bring stability back? Well, I certainly think you're going to find that the opposition parties in Westminster are going to argue that, that is the case. And I think for people sort of standing and observing what's happened over the last couple of months, particularly the fact that we've had now two leadership elections where at best less than 1% of the British electorate is going to have a say, that this continual zigzagging in terms of policy is happening without the British people really having any influence. So I, I expect that regardless of who wins the uh, leadership election at the end of next week, that those clamouring for a general election are not going to be in some way satisfied by the fact that we've got a new prime minister. So it is going to be interesting because this highlights that what we have here is not just a political crisis, but it is also a constitutional crisis about the sense in which how does the British constitution ensure that those who are elected are actually represented and are continually validated by British electoral support. Professor Jones, does all of this mean that, that maybe the next general election would be a good one to lose? I think from the Conservative Party perspective, absolutely the case. It is definitely one to lose. And if you go back to when Margaret Thatcher was removed and John Major became Prime Minister, the speculation was that 1992 general election was actually one to lose. And therefore it came as a huge surprise that the Tories actually won it. And they then went on to their worst ever electoral defeat in 1997. So from the Conservative Party's perspective, absolutely, this is one to lose. The question is going to be the depth of the defeat. Interestingly, some opinion polls have been coming out that have been saying that the Conservative Party could be down to as few as 40 seats.
That would leave them not even as the official opposition. It would leave them smaller than the Scottish National Party, who would become the official opposition, according to some polls. So on the one hand, yes, there is this need for renewal in opposition. Um, but on the other hand, you don't want to be so decimated that you can't rebuild. And so therefore, they've got that problem. From Labour's perspective, if they lose again, or if they fail to win outright, there comes the question mark of what does Labour have to do to win a general election? So one of the interesting things has been, again, looking at British history over time, whenever there's been economic crises, the Conservatives have lost the subsequent election. Labour have rebuilt the economy, rebuilt the country somewhat, and then have lost as they've then fractured and how do they take things forward after the rebuilding. So I suspect we may have a situation where Labour win the next election, possibly with a big majority, possibly not. They rebuild, building on whatever comes from October the 31st, and then they've split in the way the Conservatives are splitting at the minute, but maybe not quite as radically or as violently. And then the Conservatives come back into office. And this has been the UK electoral cycle now since the Second World War. Coming up on a future agenda, why sponge cities could be the answer to a global water shortage. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.